Welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast, the most influential and listened to podcast in auto detailing. Welcome to the community. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast. I'm back. This is Nick. Marty filled in last week. Hope you guys enjoyed a little change of pace, had some things come up, but we're back. Check us out, the HyperClean Specialist Group, hypercleanstore.com. I've been sharing a little bit of a restoration project that we've had in the shop, 1989 Porsche that caught fire, has been completely restored. Been sharing a little bit of that project in the HyperClean Specialist Group on Facebook. If you're not a member, go join and check out some of those videos. Since I've been gone, we actually had a huge auction. We've had another, we had a uh, Porsche sell on bring a trailer I want to talk about. So let's get into some of the cars. We're going to talk polishing paint a little bit later on in this episode. For those that are interested in uh, that type of subject, that'll be coming after we run through some of these auctions that I thought were pretty interesting. We had a 1994 964 Turbo S sell for $1.26 million online at bring a trailer. I keep trying to educate people. It's so cool. Everybody's reaching out now. I know I got a couple of my collectors listening to this podcast. Uh, I've been trying to tell them a lot of the results we're seeing that we'll share today. This is what's happening. Do not think because you like a car that makes it valuable and what makes things valuable is usually rare. You'll have some exceptions to that rule. Here's where you have a 1994-964 and you think to yourself, ah, it's not that special. Well, there was a less than there was less than 100 Turbo S's built for the entire world, and only 17 of those were non-flat nose built for the United States. Which one of these were? This is what one of these cars were, or this car was. Excuse me. So now you have 1.26 million on the sale. It's about rarity. It's not about anything else. I had a couple of people texting me about this this auction, and I, I was watching it. I had some things come up, so I didn't see it finish. I heard it. It got into the seven figures, and people wanted to equate this to the Porsche bubble, you know, the GT3 bubble and the GT2 bubble and all these other bubbles that, that people think exist. This isn't the same thing, man. This is an incredibly rare car. It's, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say I love driving 964s. They're okay. They're all right. It's not my favorite Porsche ever built, uh, but it's a great car. But it's not about it being a great car. It's about being a rare car. And that's what you have here. And we got to start understanding that the world's going to go back to normal and is starting to go back to normal a little bit, although we have some anomalies that we saw happen in Miami last week. One of the things that I want everybody that follows us to understand is the rhyme or reason about rarity is always going to be in the market. This car could be worth 750 grand in the middle of a recession next year. Let's just say that happens. And everybody will go, oh, that was a terrible buy. But if he waits it out and he gets to a, a good economy and gets on the other side of the recession, this could be worth $2 million. So this is a buy and hold car. And the reason is, is that it's rarity. And too many people, I had somebody email me and, and, and you know who you are. We had a good laugh about it. This is why Camaros, this is why Corvettes, this is why, you know, those types of things don't excite me for the future because now you're starting to see the rarity in these 80s and 90s European cars that the numbers are getting so massive. And I had a whole host of people that wouldn't listen to me in my life 
I knew a lot of this stuff was good. The Porsche thing I didn't really know to this scale. What I knew is I am interested, me personally as a car guy that grew up 80s, 90s, early 2000s, that's when BMW, Mercedes, those types of cars were, were, were things that impressed me. Porsche impressed me. Ferrari impressed me. You go back to people that came up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and early, early, early part of 80s were coming of age. They're going to be very into muscle cars. Well, you look at the age now, all the people that are gathering wealth for, wealth for the first time and want to start adding to their collection are, guess what? My age, 40, uh, let's call it 38 to, 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 to 50. And now these people are in the marketplace. They don't want to buy muscle cars. Muscle cars do fine, but muscle cars don't have the upside of $1.26 million like this Porsche and some of the others that I'm going to share from the Miami auction. So remember, the 94964 Turbo S, it's about rarity. And then you make it more rare when you call and say a non-flat nose 17 were given to the United States. I mean, it's hard to find more rare than that. And so that's why you saw the $1.26 million price tag. It's not because it's a Porsche either. You could do the same exercise with Ferrari. It'd be probably double or triple that for something so special. Lamborghini would be double or triple that for something so special. Uh, McLaren would probably be double or triple that for something so special. Uh, it's not because it's a Porsche. It's because of the rarity and somebody wants it because it's in one of those brands that the people coming of age for money want to buy. Let's talk about the most surprising number, though, to many people coming out of a Miami show for RM Sotheby's 1987 Mercedes Benz. 560 SEC 6.0 AMG. They had this estimated in the catalog as a high of $275,000 sale. The hammer came down at $720,000 on this vehicle. Very rarely do you see that the catalog off that much. Triple what everybody thought it was going to sell for. Number one, it sold to a dealer who I'm guessing already has a buyer lined up. He knows this market. He's one of the great ones in the United States. That's number one. So there had to be something behind this sale. Number two, this car is pre-AMG merging into Mercedes-Benz. This is when AMG was still building everything outside of the Mercedes world right? They weren't part of the company. So pre-merger Mercedes are going through the roof. I had talked to somebody recently about six months ago, and we were talking about what analog cars, what cars we saw going up. Everybody that was in the know knew these pre-AMG merger cars were going to start hitting the market, and they were going to start getting crazy price-wise. Even 275 is considered pretty crazy. Uh, for just four or five short years ago. But $720,000 hammer price is pretty crazy. And this got a lot of buzz. This 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 made the rounds. Look, I think it has, don't quote me because I didn't write it down, six to 8,000 kilometers on the clock. It's still pretty low mileage. But now you're talking about analog, analog driving experience and pre- one of the biggest partnerships and mergers that happened for Mercedes in the history of its company when AMG was doing all the aftermarket stuff on its own. 
So what a great, great car to pick up. But again, look at that number through the lens of there was another 89 uh, Benz 560 SCL 6.0 AMG that went for $258,000 in that same auction. I think it was it was well above its its high estimate. Okay, so those things that you're seeing in the marketplace now, you're seeing a lot of normalization. You're seeing a lot of things cool off yet not fade away. We'll get to the F40 and the Lamborghini Countach of, of what I see in that. So you're seeing things slow down, but then you're seeing bring a trailer on this special 964. It ain't slowing down. You see this Benz, low miles, pre-AMG, Mercedes merger, already at, a, at an elevated price compared to three, four, five years ago, and now they tripled it. But you got to look at the game behind the game. You had somebody that's that's in the business of selling rare cars by this, which tells me he's already been told where by somebody that they're willing to pay uh, a million, million two, million four for that car. He knows somebody that wants that car. Uh, but that's still an incredible, incredible, incredible auction uh, to, to see that level of number is something I definitely didn't see coming out of this, this special Miami auction. Uh, I'm always going to be partial to the 91 LM002 uh, Lambo SUV. Uh, for those that have never seen it, uh, it went for $368,000. That was above its high estimate too. That's also interesting to me because, you, you know, LM2s come up for uh, come up for auction here and there. Uh, I've seen them more as of recently. I don't think I'd want to own one. They're really cool to see in person. But to still see that climbing, I think it, it says something about the Lambo brand a little bit. It says something about the, the rarity of these. They're not ultra rare, but they're rare enough if they're low mileage. Uh, that, that one stuck out to me, so I brought that one up. But let's look at the Ferrari F40 and the Lamborghini Countach. And the Countach, I believe, was was a was a limited edition. They sold for a ton of money. Okay, so don't get me wrong. I think the Countach finished like at five fifty. I think you finished at three point two million for the F40. Here's something to, that 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 I'm bringing this up. These finished right in their estimates. So you're seeing these slow down. Doesn't mean they're going to stop growing. Maybe they go down in a recession. I'm not making that prediction. I'm saying these cars were on a spaceship going to the moon, and all of a sudden you get to this place where these Benzes are going crazy. The, 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 the market is hot where you're at, and you were able to get F40 and Countach right in the range of the estimates of the auction. That, that kind of stuck out to me a little bit because you're starting to see parts of this thing slow. I think the F40 part of it, and, and this is just speculation on my part, I can't believe how many have come up for sale recently. I think F40 owners, if they were getting good advice, would have sat this year out, the rest of the year out. I'd probably sit all of next year out with an F40. There are so many coming to auction that you have a limited buyer for those vehicles, meaning they'll always sell, but you know, you really want to spread out those special cars. And I think I've seen an F40 10 or 15 times this year come up for sale. I mean, that, that, that just shouldn't happen. 
and, and again, Sotheby's does the right thing for its business. They're like, hey, if you want to put an F40 in our auction, we'll take one. And so that's what they did. Finish right in the range. I was not surprised because I've seen that market slow, but I mean, 3.2 or whatever and finished at 3.5. How slow really is it? Uh, so I thought I'd share those things. Really cool stuff that I, that I kept a hold of while I was out of the office a little bit. And now I want to talk a little bit about the 1989 Porsche slant nose we had in the shop really the last couple of weeks. Uh, this is a project I worked on by myself because that was the request of the client. They were willing to pay the exorbitant amount of money uh, for me to step away and, and take a few hours a day, you know, three, four, five hours here, two hours here. They knew I'd get it to them when I got it to them. The project has finished up. It was just picked up about an hour and a half ago. and. It reminded me of just why I went away from that very 20, 30, 40, 50 hour work plus. You can't scale it. I've never watched people scale it. Uh, if you could point me to a place that has five to 10 employees doing this, this, this type of exact work, I'd love to go see their operation. I don't think it really exists. But this is kind of where I got my start. Right. This is this is kind of how I started my business and 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 the things I was doing in 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 08, 9, 10, those types of places. It reminds you that it is like riding a bike, polishing paint, cleaning up the interior, protecting things. It it, it is like riding a bike. But today, what I want to focus on is talking about here you have a 1989 Porsche. It caught fire and has been restored. It's been about a three-year project now. So we have a stressed paint system. We have parts that we find out, you know, it, this is one of the things I hated about this part of the business. Okay. So let me share this part. A lot of owners are always under the impression they have a great car. And this is a great car because it's basically been restored to completely Porsche spec from Porsche parts from overseas. And it's a fun car and it's a car this guy should love, but I always hate breaking the news that the entire front end, I believe, has re received a respray. I found some tape marks. I found some tape that was painted over. I found a lot of things around the gas tank that I just, you know, once I started pulling some things, I go, oh, we got a problem. Then when I was correcting the hood, it would became apparent to me. We got a major issue here. This car's had a repaint on the front end. And 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 so I informed them. And, and if that's to me, those are depressing calls that, that I've made so much in my career, I don't want to make them anymore. Honestly, I, I hate because this guy is so invested in this car. And now I have to inform him that not only did your car catch fire, which was just an unlucky thing, but now you really have very little originality here. And you've spent three years building this. It's not going to be worth that much. Okay. I mean, it'll be worth something. But you better just love this car. I hate those calls. I hate that part of this business of, of restoration type of work. I, I just don't like it at all. Uh, I, I don't miss it. I, I'm glad I'm out of it. I, I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore on a, on, a, on a real scale like I was. But I want to walk you through restoring paint that's been under stress, heavy oxidation, things that you guys run into every day is oxidation. One of the things I see, that there are two things I want to talk about today, especially. Largely, I think people have been mis 
you know, mistaught is not even a word, I don't think, but have not been taught properly how to do a test spot, believe it or not, with a thousand test spot videos. I have a fundamental disagreement with how the test spot is taught. We don't teach it that way here. And I have a fundamental disagreement about blowing out pads. Number one, I don't blow out polishing or compounding pads when I'm working on a car. If I feel that I need to blow a pad out, I'm going to switch a pad out, meaning I'm going to get a new pad and put it on there. There's two reasons for this. Well, two main reasons. Number one, it's the least efficient thing you can do. Okay. There's no efficiency in constantly stopping and blowing your pad out. I guess I'll, I'll tell you there's three major things that, that I do a little differently than most. I don't blow out pads. The second one, the second part of not why I don't blow out the pad is actually this part of it. When I don't care if you have used a wet bucket method, I don't care if you use a, you know, you, you tell me you do this with your blower. You tell me you put it in a trash can. You tell me you walk outside every time. Here's the problem. Unless you blow the pad outside your building, you're introducing more debris into your space. That's just a fact. Why well, do it in this wet bucket on the ground? Do we know how small all these particles are? We're taking highly compressed air. It's moving a ton of particles. Maybe it catches 75%. I think that's a pretty high number, but let's say that. Well, the other 25% have now gone into the air. They're now landing on my car. If I have a shop with multiple cars, they're landing on multiple cars. I'm already fighting debris when I polish coming off the pad while I'm working. Why do I want to add more when it's unnecessary? So I don't blow out pads when I'm working on a paint correction, period, end of story. Don't do it. My guys don't do it. I don't teach it. I don't do it. It is the elite the least efficient thing you can do. And also you're, you're blowing debris into your area. And so now you're talking about working clean, working clean, working clean. How are you working clean? Unless you're walking outside every time, or you have a hundred thousand dollar downdraft system that you can blow it into the ground, uh, paint booth style. How are you getting zero debris around the car, zero debris around your shop, zero debris around your garage? The answer is you aren't. You aren't. And there really is no debate. There, I've never seen it work. And trust me, I started blowing out pads. Uh, I started with you know metal spur. I've started right where everybody else is. But when you step back and you ask the common sense of it, it doesn't work. What I suggest people do is look at the average car and say that it has 10 to 12 to 13 different panels on the car, depending on how big it is, depending on how it's designed, whatever. Get a pad per panel. You got a big roof or you got a big hood. Maybe you put two or three pads on for that. And I know what everybody's going to say. Well, that's expensive. Okay. Let me tell you what's really expensive wearing your pads out the reason so many people wear their pads out is is in my in my opinion what i've seen in my career the backing comes off because it's overheated 
well, I blow it out, Nick. I do this. I do that. Okay. That doesn't work the way you think it does. You're stressing the pad constantly. You're, you're, you're trying to reuse something that should be put over here and washed at a later date, washed later in the day and used a different time. Well, Nick, I do, you know, five paint corrections a week. What am I supposed to do? You got to build up your pad system. It's part of being a professional. It's part of being a high-end enthusiast. It's part of that kind of world. But you shouldn't be blowing out pads. And you shouldn't think that I'm going to walk to the door every time because that's inefficient. And, you know, thinking that you're going to put it down in a bucket, magically I'm not going to have this stuff all over the car. Yes, you are. I've watched it my whole career. You guys can watch it yourself when you pay attention. So I don't blow out pads for efficiency. I don't blow out pads for, for uh, the debris issue. And I don't prime pads. This is one of the craziest things I see people get taught. I, there's, a, there's a great video on the internet, YouTube. I don't know who did it, where they actually show on a black GMC that putting all of that polish and compound on the surface of your pad actually gives you less of a finish and less uh, less of a gloss, less of a, 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 a good product by priming the pad with all of this compound and polish. Folks, if you use four or five dots, when the pad moves around, what do you think happens? You think it doesn't get all over the pad? And also, I have a theory. If you use, you know, let's go to like a yellow Rupes compared to R1 pad. R1 pad can take on, because of its, it's such a dense, 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 dense foam, can take on a lot more product if you prime it and still be effective over a Rupes yellow, which I used for years. If you look at the Rupes yellow, it has a lot of, it's not as dense as our blue one pad. So I go to Rupes yellow and I, I prime that pad. And all of a sudden I get pick up some oxidation on this 1989 paint job. And now the pad is screwed. I've clogged it. I've clogged it. I've clogged it. It doesn't have the density to fight that. And all of a sudden now I'm getting a bad finish on the car. We have to remember that we're doing two things. We're taking a liquid to remove oxidation, but we're also picking up a ton of oxidation into the pad. So why would I want to fill the pad more with with a polish or a compound because somebody on the internet or somebody at a training who sells compound is telling me that's what I should do. Don't do it. In my opinion, I've never taught it. I don't see a bunch of high-end shops that, that I know personally that believe in it. We've all tried it. I'm certainly not going to take out a tool and wipe it on the pad. I got work to do. Find yourself a balance between excellent work and efficiency. And what you can see is all these things that are being taught are leading to massive inefficiencies in the polishing world. No offense to anybody. There's a bunch of people out there who've given out great information, but we've introduced a lot of inefficiencies because we haven't stepped back and said, ah, yeah, that just doesn't make sense. Blowing your pad out with high level compressed air and thinking it's not getting all over your car like I said, unless you have a downdraft system or, or some six-figure system to get it out of the air, it's in the air, which means it's on your car, which means now the oxidation I removed that I just blew out of my pad is now back on the oxidized, oxidized paint system. 
chasing my tail. Just not something that, that, that I'm going to spend time on. Uh, yeah, we have thousands of pads in my business. That's, that's the level that it has to be. There is no other option. Uh, if you want to work efficiently, if you want to keep your pads in great shape, all of those different types of things. Then I got to thinking, I don't really think a whole bunch about a test spot. It's not something that crosses my mind a whole lot. And I should probably should have talked about this earlier, but I want to talk about the inefficiencies and especially the, the behavior that goes on around the test spot that's being taught. The test spot's important for all of us to make a game plan for what? The whole car. Here's what I see happening with this whole test spot fiasco. I'm going to tell you to do eight section passes every car, and that's your test spot. Okay, so I am testing pad and polish or pad and, and compound. Okay, but I'm not testing the best way to use those with that system. I have never found a need to do eight section passes. I've never done it. I'm I, you know, maybe you could find one car in my in my life since the DA that I had to use that many passes to 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 get where I wanted to go. But I think that's highly inefficient. Compounds and polishes are so good now. If you're being told to continually work compounds and polishes, and you know, I see this a lot. Work compounds and polishes until it goes clear because you got to get it to finish down. That is a very outdated technology. So let me explain the technology that's being any good company now is, is putting this into there. You're getting these like micro abrasives, super, super fine on a level that honestly we didn't have before. Okay. You're getting these tiny abrasives that you don't have to wait for them to diminish. You don't have to wait for them to break down. They're built coming out of the bottle to break down. So I watched this conversation around overworking compounds and polishes and, and thinking that, that that's the efficient way to do it. It's a way to do it. It's highly inefficient and largely doesn't lead to the best finish in my experience. So I'll get to that. But here's how to effectively use a test spot, in my opinion. So I'm going to take a hood, a trunk lid, a roof, wherever you want to do your test spot. Let's just say the hood. And I'm going to divide the hood into three different test spots. Okay. They have, they can be small two by two, one by one. I don't care what you do, but I have three test spots. And so let's say I'm doing a one step and I grab our one pad and I grab uh, my favorite one step polish slash compound uh, product. And I put four dots on it and I'm going to do in the first box, I'm going to do two passes on the, on the surface. In the next spot, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to do four passes. And in the third spot, I'm going to do six passes. I'm going to look at those three and say, okay, what finish do I like? Man, I really don't like any of them. Okay, my first thought isn't now to go and do eight section passes. It's what am I seeing on the surface? I'm not getting a lot of cut. I'm going to go for something a little bit more aggressive. I may even do two dots of my favorite polish and two dots of a compound as a test spot, but I'm going to do three test spots with that combination. So 
I may stay same pad, add some more cut by adding a little polish to the pad, two dots compound, two dots polish. Guess what I'm going to do now? I'm going to get the cut. Let's see if I can get the finish. Okay, I do my two-section two, two passes, my four-section passes with that, and my six-section passes with that. Perfect. Two thumbs up, man. Mm, which one do you like best? Well, the, the six-section passes, it's still it's pretty hazy. The four-section passes doesn't kind of look right. Wow, the two-section passes looks terrific. Great. This is what I want to use. This is perfect for what I, the customer wants. Now, I want you to think about if I walked in and did eight section passes every time, why would I do that? I now am taking six extra section, section passes that I don't need to take. So now I'm inefficient. The next part of it is not only am I inefficient, I may end up with a worse finish by doing the eight section passes. So Take this paint that I found a solution at two section passes. It works great. Got me right where I need to go. And I know what somebody's thinking. I've never had that happen. I've had it happen a lot. My guys have it happen a lot. Tesla is a perfect example. If I get to a point with a black Tesla where two section passes gets me exactly what I want, by the time I go to four, I'm adding haze. By the time I go to six, I'll start to see some tick marks and maybe even some, some hologram type of behavior. By the time I hit eight section passes, the panel looks just as bad as when I started. Why? Because I've gone past the point of where this combination can finish, and it started to inflict damage on the fourth section pass, the sixth section pass, and the eight section pass. And then you, you, you look up and you go, oh, man, wrong pad, wrong this. Maybe, but if I had done my two section pass test spot, I could be done with this Tesla in two hours. And it will look perfect, 95% cut and finish. So I see these things with test spots, and the test spot is necessary. We all get that. But the inefficiency of guys telling you, walk in ready to do eight section passes, bad advice. That is not real-world advice. I call that training advice. It's like Dave Ramsey, okay? I have nothing against Dave Ramsey. Some of you may listen to him. He's a financial guy. He tells people everything credit is bad. Oh, don't run up this. You know what's bad with credit? Buying sneakers you can't afford on a credit card and then paying 30% interest. It's as simple as that. But if you took out a low interest loan to buy a highly profitable business and the business was going to pay off that loan in no time, and here you are with millions of dollars in the bank because the business is killing it, that's not bad debt. But a hit to him, it would be bad debt. So he oversimplifies something for the sake of him selling a book, his radio show. He doesn't think his audience can handle it. He doesn't know how to break it down and, and, and make it digestible for the masses. This is what's happened with this eight section pass world, with this blow out your pad world. We've tried to make it super easy for everyone. And what happens when you put all those super easy, bad advice together, you get crazy amounts of inefficiency. I had somebody tell me it took them five hours to do a one-step polish on a Model 3 Tesla. Wasn't a beginner. Thinks it's normal. Thinks that's what you have to do. Then he showed me the results. They weren't that good. Not for what he thought they were. And we had a conversation about it. He was asking my opinion. I didn't just, like, message him. He hit me up for my opinion. 
said you're inefficient. What's your one pad system or, you know, what's your one system, you know, one step system. Oh, well, I got these pads and this and that, and I got my air compressor and I'm going, dude, this, this is, we have got to leverage technology. Compounds, polishes are changing right before your eyes. These little, little particles of abrasive now are so easy to start breaking down right the first time your pad hits it. We had somebody here who wanted to see something on one of my cars. I got a crazy result with this polish and, and compound we were testing, and he struggled with it. He tried to use it. He's like, oh, I don't like this. I said, you know why you don't like it? You're trying to use it. You're trying to work the shit out of this, this stuff. Why are you working a polish so long? Oh, well, I'm like, dude, it's unnecessary. Do three passes on this panel. Did three passes, got a perfect result. Two, four, six is what we do in my company. It's what I've been doing for years. I don't think to bring up this stuff until I kind of get back working on a car. So I apologize for that. But it's about efficiency. And actually, I kind of want to leave you guys with this. This shit's really about common sense at this point. Now I look, if you're trying to get that last 5%, 95% to 100% correction or near 100% correction, Hey man, that that's real talent. You got to have some secrets to the trade. You got to be willing to pick up some sandpaper and you got to be willing to do some things. But when you're talking about one steps, uh, a compound and a polish, it's never been easier. Don't pick up a machine and think the guy on the internet is a hundred percent right about what's going to make you efficient. It's a starting point, right? Dave Ramsey's telling you not to get into consumer debt. Don't be the fool that doesn't go buy a highly successful business because it, it, it means you might have to borrow some money at a low interest rate, right? Like don't be the fool that listens to it. All everything Dave Ramsey says is gospel. Everything this polishing, you know, company or this trainer told me is gospel. It isn't. And that's not their fault. They got to, they got to boil things down to simplicity and they can't tell you everything that I'm telling you now but, but trust me when I say this, there, there's an important part of polishing and compounding where if you're not efficient, you're going to burn yourself out. If, you're, if your steps aren't efficient, you're going to have trouble hiring because that's why most people can't hire people to polish paint is because they can't teach it in, in a very digestible way, an easy system. My system's easy. Three test spots. You know, we'll add some compound and polish together on the, on the pad. If we need cut, we got what, three or four pads we like in our, in our entire system, uh, in my company, it's efficiency. We can still get that 95% clarity, uh, very easily with most of the things we have on our trucks. If I need to sand something, that's a whole different animal. We're not really in that heavy business anymore because it's not profitable, not long-term. And so I want people to understand this is one of the most important things that we have to realize is that it becomes efficiency and then it becomes more fun. The oxidation coming off this Porsche was, was pretty gnarly. It's not gnarly when you got, you know, 20 pads ready to go. I had 20 hyperclean one pads ready to go on this small car. Boom. Pads not acting right. Rip it off, throw it away, throw it, throw it to the bucket. Boom, boom, boom. All of a sudden, I mean, a couple hours and, and, and I'm, I'm picking this car apart got some small areas. I shared some ways to get your, your, your five inch up on edge. 
and, and start to using your edge. I see guys pulling out way too many tools to have to do paint correction. Uh, you got to get better at maneuvering the, the singular five or six inch tool that you have, uh, polisher that you like. Look, man, this was and, and will be uh, a project I remember. These guys really trusted me. This guy really loves his car. But I thought I'd share some things uh, that that I came across that that maybe I just take for granted. Maybe it helps some of you. Maybe maybe some of you uh, are already doing it this way or disagree with me or whatever. But I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little little geeky uh, polishing stuff. Uh, you know, again, fun project, and I know exactly why I'm not doing a bunch of this work anymore. I mean, it's great money. It's 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 great to get back into it once or twice or maybe three times a year, but I don't like doing this heavy restoration work anymore. I've put my time in. I'm very happy with my, where my company is. Uh, and again, I'm flattered people want me to do it. But, uh, you know, again, I, I try to tell you guys, there's just not, when you start taking in the amount of time and headache and all these different things, it, it gets pretty, pretty gnarly. So, uh, again, thanks everybody for listening. We'll talk to you next week.